You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm Michael McFall, the director of FSI. Welcome back to World Class. Civil wars aren't what they used to be. More and more, groups that work across borders, whether they be governments, humanitarian organizations, or terrorist groups, are getting involved in conflicts that start within a single state. Transnational terrorism has had a particularly negative effect on conflict in the Middle East and North Africa, turning heads around the world towards internal conflicts for fear of violence that may spread across borders. This is the new world of civil wars and how it relates to terrorism and jihadism in particular, which we want to talk about. There's no better person, in fact, to talk about that than Martha Crenshaw, who's with us again here today on World Class. Thanks for being here, Martha. Martha is a senior fellow here at FSI. She's been studying terrorism for more than 40 years and has watched jihadism become a factor in almost half of today's civil wars. She's one of eight FSI scholars who has written about civil wars for a special volume of Daedalus, actually two volumes of Daedalus, the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The authors aim to understand how civil wars have changed and how the international community should respond. Martha, thanks for having me back on World Class. It's a great pleasure. Well, let's start with some definitional things like we did the last time, in fact. Uh, we tend to use the word terrorism when we talk about this kind of violence, but you concentrate on jihadism in particular. Help us understand that. Well, the focus here was particularly on the relationship between terrorism and civil war. And this is a relationship that hasn't been studied very much. And actually, I hadn't given it quite a lot of thought until actually the editors of this volume, uh, Carl Eikenberry and Steve Krasner, asked me to think about it. And the type of transnational terrorism that's most closely associated with civil war is terrorism that's associated with jihadism. That is, violence in the service of a particular interpretation of Islam that argues that uh, Muslims need to use violence in order to defend themselves against their enemies, particularly Western occupiers, uh, Western conquerors. Uh, the term is somewhat uh, contentious. Uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security would rather you use violent extremism violent than extremism. violent extremism as opposed to jihadism. Uh, but this is a term that these actors use to describe themselves. And so uh, among academics, we, we call it jihadism. Help us understand why uh, Homeland Security wants to call it violent extremism. What's their argument for that term? Well, they don't pose uh, an explicit argument, and things have been changing rapidly at DHS. But I think one of the early arguments was that uh, the term jihadism implies that uh, going to war and using violence is a main, the main core of the concept of jihad, whereas in Islam, uh, that's the lesser jihad. The greater jihad is uh, self-reflection uh -huh. and sort of uh, self-improvement, uh, and that it, it misinterprets Islam by using that term. And second, the possibility that you might be glorifying these actors by calling them what they like to be called, that in a way they're appropriating a concept and redefining it, and that we're sort of buying into their redefinition of the concept. Well, that's interesting to me. It reminds me of a time I used to study uh, national liberation movements during the, the Cold War and the debates we had about anti-colonial movements versus communist movements, the ideological component versus the socioeconomic causes and the responses to foreign policy. 
help us understand, and maybe this is an impossible question, so I admit <laughs> that, but, uh, you know, what's the, you know, what's the, the content uh, for those that use this term? How much is it about religion and how much of it is about political and economic struggles more generally? Well, there is a certain uh, similarity to national liberation movements in the uh, sort of in the you know, as we began to break away from the colonial era, uh, communism, nationalism, the power of ideas versus the power of psychology, sociology, right. social movements. Uh, what persuades people to join these groups? I think that in political science, which is, of course, my field and your field, uh, we're coming back to the idea that ideas matter, that ideology can matter. Uh-huh. It's not everything, but for a long time, interpretations of violence did fall along the sort of socioeconomic right. model. And left ideas out of it, right? Left ideas out of it. And now people are saying there is something about uh, an ideology, an extremist ideology that helps motivate people, uh, helps overcome collective action problems, right. and that we need to look at the ideas that lie behind violence. Right. We can't ignore them. Very interesting. I mean, had we more, more time, well, let's talk about political science and why we ignored it, but let's not do that. <laughs> right. Let's talk about this substance. How about that instead? <laughs> so tell us how and under what conditions do jihadism uh, and the allies of jihadism and the proponents of jihadism influence civil wars? Well, I argued that uh, it's sort of a two-way street. On the one hand, terrorism affects the way civil wars begin, how they progress, how they end. At the same time, civil wars can be a cause of transnational terrorism. Uh, mix into that foreign military intervention. And for example, I'm, I might argue that uh, when in the context of a civil war, there's a spectacular act of transnational terrorism, say the attacks in Paris in November of uh-huh. 2015, the state that's attacked has a very strong motivation now to intervene in a civil war. And France did indeed. Uh, you find increased activism on the part of outside powers when they're attacked through transnational terrorism. This then complicates the process of the Civil War uh, without making any judgment as to what long-term effect it has. It certainly makes it much more complicated. Adds another actor to what's already a very, very confused and chaotic mix of different actors. Uh, Similarly, look at Turkey. One reason for Turkish intervention in Syria uh, was precisely that Turkey was being targeted by Islamists, by jihadists. Inside Turkey. Inside Turkey. Right. So this in the United States, in uh, in this case, um, actors associated with jihadism weren't able to strike the U.S. within the U.S. They were responsible for some plots that didn't come off, but they attacked a number of foreigners within Syria. We all recall the terrible videos of hostages and beheadings. Right. All of this provokes uh, external intervention. Is there a kind of uh, stages to these interventions and to radicalism more generally? And you, you just talked about Syria. Maybe we should spend a little time on Syria. Mm-hmm. As I recall, I was in the government at the time, that in the initial stages of the political struggle there, it was peaceful. And the ideas that were being espoused by the demonstrators didn't have much to do with jihadism. But over time, A, things became more violent because of the violence of the regime, of course. There was an interaction there. And suddenly I had to learn new acronyms, I remember, and new phrases. I I remember the first time I saw the words al-Nusra. That was a surprise to me. Uh, Later, ISIS, of course, more famously. 
tell us how, if you have a theory of that, and maybe just the case of Syria, what's the kind of trajectory of these cases? Well, that's interesting and interesting that you, Al-Nazra appeared as, uh, as a new actor uh, indeed. Uh, it's now in its third transformation with yet a different name. So uh-huh. I, I still call it Al-Nazra because it's very difficult. Uh, it, it now has gone through at least two different name right. changes and organizational changes right. since then. So I think what you're seeing is a case where the beginnings, the onset of a civil war created the circumstances that were very propitious for what was an external jihadist intervention because the, right. the jihadists who as we've already acknowledged by mentioning ISIS and al-Nusra are not are not cohesive necessarily they're right. very divided among themselves Good point. but it created an opportunity for them to intervene and what happened was that the so-called Islamic state at that time the Islamic state of Iraq was right. in Iraq and had been, in effect, defeated uh, by the United States, but was seeking an opportunity to uh, to advance itself again. And the outbreak of the civil war in Syria, indeed, initially peaceful protest becomes more violent, simply cre- creates fertile ground for a group like ISIS to move in. So they created the al-Nusra Front. And then uh, at that time, both groups were nominally allied with al-Qaeda itself. They were. Uh, one, so we, we might have been entitled or, or justified in thinking that there was something monolithic about it, but what we perhaps did not acknowledge as fully as we should have was already the internal splits in the organization. Right. So what happened was that al-Nusra and its original parent, ISIS, split with ISIS going its own way, al-Nusra remaining loyal to al-Qaeda. But in the complicated trajectory of the Syrian civil war, the former al-Nusra front is now apparently no longer so loyal to al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. <laughs> so what we've seen is that in the course of the civil war, it, it has caused more splits within the jihadist movement. Right. And so there are many organizations now inside Syria, right? There are many. That, there are that so identify many. as being jihadist. How many identify as being jihadist? It is a large number in terms of overall number of armed groups in Syria. 1,500 wow. numbers are astonishingly high. And these groups announce themselves by uh, launching formation videos. So they announce their establishment. Okay. Some are very small, some are larger, some are local, some are national, but there are many, many, many different groups of which uh, a certain number, I, I wouldn't even hazard a guess, are jihadist in inclination, but they differ with each other. They even sometimes fight each other. Right. Uh, it's an extremely, extremely confusing situation, which, as we now know, we have Turkey, who's about to attack Kurdish groups that the U.S. supports. So two NATO allies on different sides incredible. in the civil war. It's an incredible situation. And, of course, the destruction for the civilian population in Syria is just just devastating. It's a humanitarian disaster. Yeah, very tragic. Um, and like you say, I, I can't remember a case when two NATO allies were intervening on other sides, nor do I remember a case, maybe you do because you've studied it, a case where we had American airplanes flying with Russian airplanes on two different sides, but allegedly fighting jihadists collectively. I can't, I can't recall anything like this where you, you find uh, 
the the old adage of the uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend right. it just doesn't work that way. Right. There are many 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 more steps of removal among these relationships, and everything changes so fast. It changes all the time. Right. It's it's extremely difficult to follow what's going on. So let's pull back a little bit and try to get some historical perspective about these jihadist movements. Um, in 1990. Uh, my notes here, I, they must be notes from your article, I think, um, uh, say that only 5% of civil conflicts featured jihadist rebels. In 2014, it was 40%. What changed? What changed was uh, al-Qaeda, uh, the formation of al-Qaeda. The, uh, as we all know, it formed uh, probably in the, at some point, probably in the late 1980s. I'm not uh, sure we all know that. So perhaps take, we don't all know this. Take so, a little time to it, explain so the history. So let's say it was, think... that it was formed uh, in the context of the fight against the Soviet Union in right. Afghanistan. Right. And some of us will remember that we, we, the United States, were on the side of the Mujahideen on that occasion right. because they were against the Soviet Union. So the original organization of al-Qaeda was an organization of in effect, foreign fighters who had come to defend uh, Afghanistan against the communist uh, incursion as they saw it. Uh, Later, Osama bin Laden uh, was encouraged, uh, motivated by this experience, regarded as a great victory of Islam over the infidel, and uh, in in effect continued this organization outside the boundaries of Afghanistan. Uh, he returned to Saudi Arabia, was eventually expelled from Saudi Arabia because of his uh, his oppositional activities, right. w- wound up in the Sudan. Sudan was persuaded to expel him. He went back to Afghanistan on the eve of the Taliban takeover, now finds safe haven, organizes the 911 attacks. After the 911 attacks, we occupy Afghanistan. We remove the Taliban from power. Bin Laden and his organization have to flee to Pakistan. Uh, Serious damage is inflicted on the organization, both by the U.S. invasion and subsequent pursuit of known members of al-Qaeda. Then, of course, in 2003, the invasion of Iraq uh, gives al-Qaeda a new chance to move into Iraq in the heart of the Arab Middle East. So that was a big event in terms of the expansion of jihadist movements, right? Definitely was because it created, again, uh, you had a civil conflict that created an opportunity for them, very fertile ground for them. And imagine from their point of view sort of the perfect cause. Here now is an Arab country invaded by a Western power, an Arab country where some of the holiest of the Muslim sites are right in the center of the Fertile Crescent. So everybody is rebelling. Not everybody, but almost everybody. Lots of people are rebelling against the U.S. and the coalition. So they now can become Iraqi patriots, if you will, never mind that they originally came from the outside. The first leader of what's now the Islamic State was a Jordanian. Uh, The current leader, al-Baghdadi, is the first Iraqi ever to be the leader of of it. The leader of it. So uh, they then, so the movement then sort of regains momentum in Iraq. Again, it is pretty effectively suppressed, not only by U.S. military pressure, but by the fact that a large number of the Sunni groups and Sunni elites uh, reject al-Qaeda because of its 
brutality because of its extreme ideology. Okay. So they're not popular in Iraq. Then, just as it looks as though they are falling on hard times again, uh, U.S. withdraws. And the Iraqi government is unable either to incorporate Sunnis into governing structures or to provide enough security to prevent a resurgence of what's now calling itself the Islamic State in Iraq. So it's sort of beginning to grow again. Uh, And we should note that al-Qaeda had pursued uh, what a number of people call a franchise strategy. They had, over these years, created branches or outposts in different countries. All over the world, All over the world. Algeria, for example, the al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, which is fighting in Yemen. Uh, they now have a branch uh, in various other, any, any place where they think they can find any kind of supportive organization. Uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria has allied itself in various ways. Uh, when the Islamic State sort of became a rival of al-Qaeda, they began to battle each other. But this only increased sort of the global momentum of the movement. Uh-huh. So now there are branches, affiliates, associates, degree of control is sort of murky, right. divided between al-Qaeda and ISIS. And initially there was al-Qaeda, then there was kind of a bandwagoning effect that went over to ISIS when it began to appear stronger. Now we think that the momentum is swinging back to al-Qaeda, but it's all within this jihadist orbit, I think we could say. Right. So coming back to civil wars, just so I understand the argument, is it that the, it sounds like these ideas have been around for a while. Jihadists are all over the world, not just in countries in civil wars. Do they cause civil wars or do they take advantage of when the state breaks down and and that, that creates permissive conditions for jihadists to thrive? Well, it's probably more often the latter, uh, but it truly is uh, a sort of mix. So let me give uh, an example, which would be from North Africa and the Sahel. So you have the group that became al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. It's a group that uh, originally rose up on its own. Uh, We perhaps have forgotten that in the 1990s, Algeria suffered a very serious civil war that pitted, in effect, what we would now call jihadists, against the Algerian state. Uh, That group was largely uh, defeated, and in its weakness, it signed on to al-Qaeda and became an official branch of al-Qaeda, now al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, but it's still under very, very serious pressure at home. So the civil war has ended in Algeria. The the state has won that war. It ends in the victory of the Algerian government. So in effect, you now have a sort of beleaguered movement that is signed on to al-Qaeda. So what do they do? They move across Algeria's borders into Mali, and they profit by the Libyan civil war, which creates ungoverned spaces, a vast flow of weaponry across borders in a largely ungoverned area of the continent. Uh And so this jihadist group now, al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, sort of signs on to the more nationalist and separatist agenda of local rebels in northern Mali. And of course, once they enter this alliance, they begin to take over the struggle. The result was French intervention. French forces are still there. UN forces are there. And you have al-Qaeda-linked groups, local groups, all crossing borders 
and kidnapping Westerners for vast sums of money. Sounds extremely complicated. I'm glad you're following this all and writing about it. Uh, maybe finally, last question. What can we, the United States, do about it? What can the international community do about this incredibly complex nexus between civil wars and jihadist movements? Should we be focused on ending the civil wars or should we be battling the ideas of jihadism, both or none of the above? It's really, I think, the point that everybody agrees on is that an exclusively military response isn't going to do it. Okay. But this has been the mainstay of the American response for a number of years. It's not new with this administration. And it involves in particular reliance on drone strikes right. uh, to strike the leaders of these different groups. And under the assumption that this will weaken the group and eventually it will it will decline, people dispute that assumption. Some people argue very forcefully that it only increases opposition. But basically, that has been our, our main instrument uh, in these cases. We all remember that uh, American soldiers were recently killed in Niger right. in a mission to capture the leader of a jihadist group uh, acting in that area. So uh, what to do beyond uh, a military approach? I briefed my article, uh, along with my colleagues, uh, Stathis Kalivas and Tanisha Vazal, to the United Nations uh, last fall. I'm glad to hear that. And so I think we were all really uh, pleased at the level of interest on the part of the UN and the level of knowledge among the people who work at the UN about these different conflicts. So I think that points to a number of things. One, it, it really should be a multinational, multilateral response and not unilateral. Okay. Uh, there has to be buy-in from the local or host government, and that's something that's very difficult to bring about. And the response has to be based on a very detailed knowledge of these complexities, frustrating though they are, to lump it all together and say it's jihadist. And, of course, by using the right. term, we're sort of lumping Doing ourselves. Doing that almost right, yeah. But we need to disaggregate the threat and see it very much in particular local contexts and see the way in which the ideas behind al-Qaeda and ISIS have blended in with local struggles and local grievances. Well, I think our listeners will agree with me that that's why we need people like you to work on it, to understand all of those differences. Uh, incredibly complex world, but Martha, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. If you liked this episode, even if it terrified you, please review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show, and you too can subscribe for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.